Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, good morning. Jesus, we hear your piercing question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? We confess right now, God, before we even get into your word, that that's us in so many ways. Lord, we plead with you now that you would open up our hearts and our ears that we could hear you and not just walk away unchanged but never be the same again. So come, Holy Spirit. Minister to your people, we pray. Oh God, I must decrease. You must increase. Exalt Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, uh, so I grew up in St. Cloud, and I had some friends who lived a little bit outside of the city limits uh, in the country. And so I used to spend lots of time with my buddies, uh, you know, before we had our driver's license. And uh, oftentimes we would walk from their house to, say, a gas station or something like that. If we had an afternoon to kill, we were hanging out in the summer, we would walk all over the place. Um, and so several of these times, uh, we would have to go around a cornfield to get to where we're going, right? So the house would be here, maybe the gas station or wherever it was that we were going would be over here. We'd have to walk all the way around the cornfield to get to our destination. And now me, being uh, really wise and thinking, uh, you know, time management here, why don't we just cut through the cornfield and get there quicker? Why would we go around the cornfield when we can just take the straight shot through it. Now my buddies uh, who had done that before me always said, yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, but, you know, me being the hard-headed knucklehead that I am uh, would go anyways. And so I learned my lesson pretty quickly. So if you've ever walked through a cornfield, you maybe have had a similar experience as me. You know, you start off and it's kind of fun at first, right? It's like you're excited about it. You're, you know, going where you probably shouldn't be going and doing the things that you probably shouldn't be doing, but you're making good time. And so you're walking and you're walking. And then there comes this time when um, you think, huh, I've been walking a lot longer than I expected. And you look around and you realize there's no path that you've been following and you look this way, and everything just looks the same. You try and go on your tiptoes, but you can't see over. And suddenly you realize, oh man, I have no clue where I am. I don't know which direction I'm supposed to be going. I thought I knew exactly where I was going. I thought I had a sense of direction. I thought I was headed straight to where I was going. I have no clue where I'm at. You guys relate to that? You guys any experience that? So uh, at this point, you have a couple options. You can uh, just pick a direction, 
and just go straight until you hit, whether it's a ditch or a road or you finally get out, right? That's one option. The reality is if you choose that option, you're never going to end up at the destination that you're trying to get to. You'll probably be far from where you're intending to go. The other option, uh, if you have good friends, is you start yelling. (laughs) You start calling, help, help, you know, and then they yell back. And you hear their voice, and you start following their voice, and they lead you back to the path that you need to be going. The Christian life in so many ways is a lot like that, isn't it? We uh, think we know where we're going. We think that we can do this alone. We think that we can take shortcuts and easy ways, and then we end up, man, I am lost, far from where I thought I was going, all alone, and I'm in desperate need of help. The author of Hebrews says it pretty clearly. He says that we need to exhort one another every day every day lest our hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins and we find that we have drifted far from God brothers and sisters we need each other we need each other I'm convinced the only reason I'm not like totally off the rails um, you know I'm (laughs) I'm a bit off the rails but not totally gone yet um, is because God has been so kind to time and time and time again use the people of God to remind me of the truth, to remind me of the gospel, to call my wandering heart back to Jesus again. It has been God's grace to use the people of God time and again in my life. So in the text today, Jesus is making a really strong statement. He's saying in no uncertain terms that to hear him and not obey him is absolutely devastating. He says it's like building a house without a foundation. It's sure to come crashing down. While hearing his words and obeying him is like building a house on the only foundation that will withstand the trials of this life. So over the last uh, several weeks, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Plain. Now, if you had a friend or someone who asked you, hey, what's a good passage of scripture that really kind of captures the Christian life. Luke chapter 6 verses 20 through 49 would be a really good place to go. This is the sermon on the plane uh, that we're finishing today. In this sermon, Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples what life in the kingdom is really like. Life in the kingdom following Jesus is nothing like we expect it to be. The values are different. Our love is different. Our hopes are different. We're called to love our enemies We're called to pray that God would actually bless the people who have done us great harm. Rather than getting retaliation, we're to forgive and even give to those who have harmed us greatly. Jesus is saying that we need to apply the gospel in absolutely every area of our lives. So Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Plain with a call not just to hear what he's doing or what he's saying, but to act on it. He doesn't give us the option to treat him like a buffet, taking what we like and leaving the rest. Jesus is calling us into all of life discipleship. We simply can't worship Jesus on Sundays and then live the rest of our weeks however we choose. Here's what I want you guys to hear today. If we're going to grow as disciples of Jesus... We need to live open and honest lives with one another. We need genuine community transparency rather than pretending we cannot grow as disciples by ourselves. 
And so in this text, we're going to see three ways that we must live open and honest lives if we want to build our life on the rock of Jesus Christ. The first, number one, we must be open and honest about our own sin. Look with me here at verses 39 through 42. It says, he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Uh, So Jesus begins to land the plane of his sermon uh, by telling a parable that shows how absolutely ridiculous it is to see a small speck of sin in someone else's eyes when we ourselves have giant logs sticking out of our own. We all have this tendency, don't we? We really quickly see other people blowing it when other people live selfishly, when other people are living for the fleeting pleasures and securities of this world, we are acutely aware of other people's sins. Let me ask you this question. On an average day, whose sin are you most aware of? Here's what Jesus is saying in this passage that we need to hear clearly. Uh, Sin is deceptive and blinding in such a way that we don't even realize we're deceived or blind. which means that we should all admit right now that we all have blind spots that we don't even know about. Not only does sin deceive us and blind us, <laughs> it, we actually think that we can see clear enough to see the speck in someone else's eye. Here's what Paul Tripp says. He says it really clearly. He says, often a spiritually blind person not only fails to recognize his blindness, he is convinced that he has excellent vision. A fundamental part of being spiritually blind is that you are blind to your blindness. So as long as we have remaining sin in our lives, which we all do and all will until we see Jesus face to face, we are all spiritually blind in one degree or another. We all have blind spots that we're unaware of. We are all deceived in one way, shape, or form. We all think that we see clearer than we really do. We all have this tendency and inclination to see the flaws in others and totally miss the sin in our own lives. We think we're far better than we really are. There's this um, story about Muhammad Ali that, you know, I don't, I don't know how true this story is, but I've read it a couple places, and it's a good story, so I'm going to tell it. Um, if you don't know who Muhammad Ali is, he's the, the late uh, boxing world champion. And it's a story about when he's flying to one of his fights, Right? And if you've ever flown anywhere, you know the drill, right? You get in your seat, uh, they're preparing to take off, and so the flight attendants are going through all the safety stuff and what to do in case of emergencies and and all of that. And there comes this time when the seatbelt light goes off and everyone's got to put their seatbelts on as they're preparing to take off. Now, uh, Muhammad Ali didn't think that the rules applied to him. He didn't need the seatbelt. So he doesn't put his seatbelt on. And when the flight attendants doing the final checks, they... Uh, 
They're walking through the aisles and they come up to him and notice he doesn't have his seatbelt on. And they say to him, sir, we're about to take off. Can you put your seatbelt on? To which he responds, don't you know who I am? I'm the champ. I'm Superman. Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. To which the flight flight attendant responds, yeah, Superman doesn't need an airplane either. (laughs) Right? Don't we all have this tendency to think that we're better than we really are? that we're greater than we really are, that we can see clearer than we really can. On the flip side of that, we have no clue how bad we actually are. Jack Miller, one of my old heroes, he always used to say, cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. But cheer up. You're far more loved than you could ever imagine. Listen, Waterbrook, right? our, our posture with this truth should be that we're absolutely humbly dependent upon the Lord. We should be really slow to point the finger at others. But we don't have the posture of being defeated, do we? We have a Savior who came into the world to save sinners. We have a Savior who promised to keep his people. We have a Savior who said that I will never let you go. We have a Savior who said that he will take us safely home. So we're not defeated. Our confidence isn't in our abilities to see everything perfectly. Our confidence is in the Lord who loves his people. We're not the heroes of this story, are we? This might be a surprise to you, but Jesus doesn't need us to fix anyone. But he loves to use us as instruments of his grace. And he does that best when we ourselves realize how absolutely desperate we are on that very grace ourselves. He invites us to first take the log out of our own eyes. When we see the speck, here's here's a good um, indicator, reflex that we should all have, right? When we see sin in someone else's lives, we should take that as an invitation from the Lord to examine our own hearts. There's sure to be sin in our own lives, Here's a good principle to live by, right? Before we call anyone else to repentance, we should be making sure that we're living a life of repentance ourselves. Uh, John Frame, he's, uh, he's written some books. He wrote this on his Facebook the other day, and I thought it was really good. He said, we need more Christians who will lead lives of repentance. For repentance always challenges pride, If you're coming to God daily to confess to him how much you have sinned, you'll find it hard to pretend that you are holier than everybody else. You'll find it hard to put on airs to pose as a perfect Christian. When others accuse you of sin, you won't immediately jump to defend yourself. As of course, you could never do any wrong and any accusation must spring from a misunderstanding. Rather, when someone accuses you of sin, You'll respond, you'll, you'll respond by thinking there's a high probability that the accusation is true. And you won't be embarrassed to say, oh, yes, I did do that. I'm terribly sorry. Will you forgive me? If we are able to humble ourselves before God, we'll be humble before men as well. And the church will be far better off if there are more of us like that. You see what he's saying there? When we're living humbly before the Lord, fully admitting that we're far worse than we even realize, when people come to us in love, we won't get defensive. 
We won't put up walls. We won't make excuses. We won't flip the script. Listen, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't care about the sin in one another's lives. He's not saying that at all. He's actually saying that we should be living a life where we ourselves are regularly turning from our own sins so that we can actually be helpful to one another. And the fact that we're more blind than we realize means that we all desperately need each other as well. If we're going to grow as disciples, we need to be both humble and approachable. Right? No one's coming out of the cornfield unless they ask for help. So we have to be open and honest about the sin that remains in our lives. Number two, the second way we must be open and honest is about the fruit in our lives. Look with me here at verse 43 and 44. It says, for no good fruit bears bad, I'm sorry, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So Jesus' next illustration here tells us that the, the fruit of our lives is a clear indication of our spiritual health. Uh, there's a direct correlation between the kind of people that we are and the fruit that we bear. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. We've all heard it, you know, um, said before when, whether it's ourselves, we probably start with ourselves, or someone else, um, consistently has bad fruit in their lives. Um, finally, they get caught and they're backed into a corner and they'll say something like, or I'll say something like, well, I'm a really good person deep down. At the bottom of it all, I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm actually a good person. Right? We've all heard that. Jesus is saying here in no uncertain terms that actually we are bad. And that's why the fruit of our lives is bad. Now, we've got to be clear about this, right? What exactly is good and bad fruit? I think the Apostle Paul says it about as clearly as you can in Galatians chapter 5, right? He says the, the good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, right, is, is love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, and it's self-control. This is what Jesus is saying, right? Good fruit is godly character, it's godly character. Good fruit doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances. In fact, good fruit is most clearly seen when circumstances aren't optimal. Right? Just last week, we heard Jesus say, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. What he's saying here is there's a kind of love that anyone can love. There's a kind of love that people who who aren't good trees can actually love. There's a kind of affection, there's a kind of peace that anyone can produce, but the, the kind of love, the kind of peace, the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about here must be a result of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that this kind of fruit cannot be produced by the flesh. Here's what Philip Ryken says. He says, bearing good fruit, therefore, means loving others more than I love myself making sacrifices so that someone else can advance. It means having joy, even in the midst of sorrow, giving praise to the Lord at the same time I grieve. It means being at peace about the things that tempt me to worry, trusting the Lord with my anxieties about the future, the broken relationships in my life, and the safety of the people I love. Giving my fears over to God in faith is the fruit of a life of faith. We could go on and say good fruit is being patient rather than forcing my own way. 
Good fruit is kindness and goodness going out of our way to help and serve others. Good fruit is consistent godliness, both in public and in private. What you see in public is the same that you see behind closed doors. It's a life of integrity. Good fruit is faithfulness. You keep showing up. Even if you aren't praised or recognized, you're consistent and dependable. You honor God. Good fruit is characterized by self-control rather than the you-do-you mentality of our world today, just doing whatever we desire. Good fruit is godly character. This kind of life can only this kind of life can only come from a person who's actually been transformed by the Holy Spirit. This can only happen if you've been given a new heart. The Bible says that the mark of a Christian is that we've been given a new nature at our very core. Friends, Jesus is in the business of transformation. He doesn't simply give us new rules to live by. He isn't simply a good teacher or a wise leader. He is those things. But Jesus Christ, through the outpouring of the Spirit, actually changes us. He's the Savior and Transformer. He supplies what he requires. He is actually in the business of taking bad trees and making them good trees, of taking people who produce bad fruit and making them produce good fruit. This is what Jesus Christ does. It's what he does. He's not asking us to muster up some more strength so we can, you know, pop out (laughs) good trees from a bad root. He's actually saying, you desperately need me. And I'm glad to do it. Now, what is bad fruit? Uh, in Galatians 5, Paul, the apostle, goes on to say, he says that bad fruit is marked by sexual immorality, fits of anger, hostility, jealousy, division, envy, and drunkenness. It's the life lived for our own gratification. It's a life doing whatever we please. Jesus is making a very strong statement here. He's saying that if, if these things are evident in our life, it's not a fluke. It's a result of who you are. Bad trees bear bad fruit. I want to say this carefully but clearly. If this is the dominant reality in your life, you have no reason to think that you're a good tree. That you've been transformed by the gospel. Now, does this mean that Christians don't ever struggle with these things? Of course, that's not what I'm saying. Just earlier, I said that until we all see Jesus face to face, we're all going to have remaining sin in our lives, right? So we live in the already, the not yet. We have a new glorious nature in Jesus Christ, and yet we all have the, the flesh remaining, don't we? So what do we do when there's bad fruit in our lives as believers? I'm not sure about you, um, but let's say I've had a, now a couple of weeks where I've just been angry with my wife. Here's my temptation every time. I'll think something along the lines of, maybe I need to get this a little bit under control before I say something to someone else. Maybe I gotta, you know, 
not totally fix myself because I know better than that, but I got to get it at least a little bit more together than I have right now before I actually confess the sin. I, I have to actually manage my own sin a little bit better before I'll tell someone else what's really going on. I want it to look, I need to guard my reputation, don't you know? <laughs> Let's be honest. If Sunday morning is the only time that other people in the church are in your life, it is really, really easy to hide in the dark and never let anyone know what's really going on in your life. Isolation, self-help, figuring it out first is not the soil that bad fruit dries up in. Isolation, self-help, and trying to, fi- trying to manage our own sin is the very soil where bad fruit grows stronger. Right? If we're going to grow as disciples of Jesus, we cannot hide in the dark. We must be open and honest about what's really going on in our lives, the the real fruit in our lives behind closed doors. It's in the darkness of isolation that bad fruit grows. But it's in the light of open and honest gospel community that good fruit can actually grow. We all know what it's like, don't we, To, to be in a group of people and still be totally unknown. You know, we might even be part of a a small group or maybe you're signing up for one or you've been in one in the past. Uh, You show up, put a smile on. (laughs) But when it's time to pray for each other, we'll say something like, my uncle's sick. Rather than, I've totally blown it this week and I need prayer. It's risky to be brutally honest, isn't it? It's way more risky not to be. It's scary to say to some other believers, I'm I'm still struggling with that, or I did it again. It's even more scary to stay in isolation where the enemy will whisper, you'll never get over it. You might as well quit now. Listen, it's in the context of gospel community when I can actually confess what's really going on in my life. And then rather than hearing, you'll never get your act together, I'll actually hear my brothers or my sisters say to me, John, Jesus died for that sin. John, it's not hopeless. John, we're here for you. John, get back in the game. John, there is a Savior on the throne who has not let you go. It's in the context of gospel community when we can say, man, I'm going through this. I've been going through this. I don't know how to get out. When someone will say, brother, sister, I know what that's like, and I'll walk with you through it. We have to step out of hiding. We have to step out of hiding. Look, not everyone has to know everything. That's not what I'm saying here. But some people have to know everything in our lives. And I just want to recognize how much courage it actually takes to come out of hiding. Um, I'm sure we all have stories, don't we? of taking a risk and then getting burned. So here's Waterbrook. As we're moving into a new season, doing small groups, and we're praying for deep, open, honest community, here's what we have to remember. We are a gospel family. We are a good news family. Our lives are characterized by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, right? So when someone confesses sin, the last thing we say is, I told you so. The last thing we say is, how could you? We should not be surprised when people sin, right? We are sinners. (laughs) What we do say is, hey, 
Jesus Christ died for that sin. Hey, there's grace for you. Hey, let's walk through this. Let's unpack what's going on in your heart. Why are you doing those things? And let's remember that Jesus Christ is for you and never against you. We are a good news community. We are a good news family. We are a family that is safe and welcoming. We're a family that, man, if I've blown it for two months straight, I can come in and say, I'm still struggling. I'm not over it yet. And brothers and sisters will walk alongside of us and say, let's go. There's a Savior for you. There's a Savior for you. Listen, not only is gospel community absolutely necessary to fight and kill the bad fruit in our lives, it is the place to recognize and celebrate growth in one another's lives. We get to see how God actually changes other people and ourselves. We get to see God do his amazing transforming work in people's lives when we're living in open, honest community. There is no greater joy than walking, watching the Lord transform people. But listen, we'll never see that happen if we stay in hiding. We'll never see that happen if we stay in isolation. Listen, growing as disciples means that we must take the risk to be open and honest with what's really going on in our lives. The good, the bad, and the ugly, because that's when we can actually grow. Lastly, we must be open and honest about the true treasure of our hearts. Look with me here at verse 45. Jesus says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Uh, Jesus is saying here that the, the things that you treasure determine the direction of your life. He's, he's really getting at the core of all of it right here, right? Why do we say, Lord, Lord, but don't do what Jesus says? It's because we treasure other things more than him. The treasure of your heart, the things that you truly value, truly desire, the, the things that you hope for and long for, these are the things that drive you. For example, right, if we care more about our reputation than we do the honor and glory of Jesus, man, we won't ever get brutally honest with others. We won't ever tell people what's really going on in our lives. We'll say things, like, you know, we'll always downplay the severity of what's actually happening in our lives. We'll say things like, I, I drink a little bit too much, when in reality, man, we can't stop drinking. We're destroying everything in our lives because of it. We'll, we'll, we'll downplay it. We'll say, I get angry once in a while, when in reality, and we don't remember the last time we haven't been furious, right? If we care more about our reputation, we will never get brutally honest, right? If we care more about our comfort than we do about the mission of Christ, we won't ever actually take risks for the gospel. We won't ever actually make sacrifices so that others might know Jesus, if we treasure the things of the world more than we treasure Jesus himself, listen, we will constantly be tempted to try to use Jesus to get what we really want. That is the definition of idolatry. And it's evil. We take good gifts from God and we make them the objects of our obsession. Listen, this is where the false prosperity gospel comes from, right? It says if you trust Jesus enough, you'll be healthy and wealthy. 
If you trust Jesus, you'll get the things you want. If you trust Jesus, you'll get a good job, have a nice life, make lots of money. Why not give Jesus a try? We use Jesus to get the things we really want. So if money is our treasure, sure, we'll call Jesus Lord, Lord, so I can make more money. If health is my treasure, why not give Jesus a try if he can make me healthy? Jesus says, if anyone desires to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Friends, we will never do that if we treasure anything more than Jesus himself. We'll be like the rich young ruler. You guys remember the story? Comes to Jesus asking the the most important question you could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, uh, goes through the commandments, and in this guy's blindness, he says, I've done it all. And then Jesus goes right to the heart of it all, right? He goes right to his treasure. He says, all right, sell your stuff, give it to the poor, come follow me. Jesus is saying, value me as a treasure of your life. What's a young man do? He says he walks away sorrowful because he had much possessions. The man walked away from Jesus more in love with his stuff than the king who could save him. The good news of the gospel is not that we'll get all the things our heart desires. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus will actually transform our hearts so that we will see him as our true treasure. He, he rescues us from our idolatry, not by simply giving us new commands written on stone, but by giving us a new heart and putting his spirit within us. The good news of the gospel is that we get Jesus himself. He is our treasure. He is the one that we really long for. He's the one that we were made for. He is the one who will truly satisfy us no matter what happens in this life. Listen, 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He has done everything to break down the walls that keep us from him. There is no more treasure hunt. The treasure has come for us. We get God. We get God. Our sins no longer separate us from him. The holy, holy, holy righteous one has condescended. He's paid for our sins on the cross. The wrath of God has been poured out that we deserve, but he took it in our place on that cross. He broke the wall that kept us separate from him so that all who trust in Jesus will be with him forever. Is Jesus the treasure of your life? Do you love him? Do you long for him? Can you say with the psalmist, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Or, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Man, if we're honest, we'll say, oh Lord, I love you, but I long to love you more. I don't love you as I want to. Change my heart, God. Give me more desires for you than anything else in this world. That's the cry of the Christian. I just want to know you more. I just want to love you more. I just want to see your love more clearly. I want to trust you more fully. I long for you, oh God. Oh Lord, make yourself the treasure of my heart. We can't leverage our way into that, can we? We can't try harder to just muster up more love, can we? You know how we love God more? 
The Bible says it's not that we've loved him, but that he's loved us. The Bible says that those who have been forgiven much, love much. Jesus Christ came into the world to pay for our sins in full, crying out on the cross, it is finished. Do you realize the beauty of that? Our love grows for him as we see how much he has really loved him. Our love grows for him as we meditate upon the cross. Our love grows as we see the depths of our sin for what it really is, and we see his holiness, and we see that he loves us still. He loves us still. Our love grows for him as we're reminded again and again and again that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Our love for him grows as we stop hiding and pretending that we're high and holy and realize that he actually loves us right now. Just as we are. Not some future, more put together version of us. Our love grows as we realize his love for us. We don't have to hide our head anymore. We don't have to pretend anymore. We don't leverage ourselves into the love of God. He comes after us with all of his heart. So we must be open and honest about the true treasures of our heart. Right? The idols that we've really been living for. Because here's the deal. When we compare, when we put up the idols that we've been living for, up next to the unshakable, unfathomable, unquenchable love of God in Christ, our idols appear for what they really are. They're like a flickering candle against the blazing sun. We see that they cannot save us. They cannot satisfy us. They cannot give us what they promise to give us. They, they melt in comparison to the beauty of Jesus Christ. We must be honest about what's really going on in our hearts. Christ alone is a true treasure of our hearts. So, Jesus closes his sermon and he gives us two options. Build on the solid foundation. We come to Jesus, we hear Jesus, and we obey Jesus. It's hard work. It'll cost us much. But we'll be stable, he says, here and forevermore. This is what we were made for. Option two, we can build without a foundation. We come to Jesus, we hear Jesus, and walk away unchanged. It's easy, it sounds nice, but you'll be tossed around with no footing when trials come. And when judgment days come, we won't stand a chance. The gospel invites us to admit our sin so that we can be approachable and gentle. The gospel invites us to come out of hiding that the bad fruit in our lives will actually wither away and good fruit will grow. The gospel invites us to look to Jesus and see that he has loved us with an everlasting love so that our hearts will melt and change and we'll see him as our true treasure. Waterbrook Church, let's hear the words of James. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's grow together as disciples of Jesus. He is worth it. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Lord, there's not one of us who can say 
all that you've said we've obeyed. Oh Lord, we're so thankful that you came into the world to save sinners. Oh Lord, why do we call you Lord, Lord, and don't do what we tell or what you tell us? It's because we treasure other things besides you. Lord, thank you that you have come to give us a new heart, that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not abandoned us to our own desires, that you have come to change us by your grace. We thank you for the cross where your blood poured out. We thank you, O oh God, that we are new creatures in Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can be totally honest because you are totally for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.